All righty. Good evening, everybody. My name is Ray. Welcome to the Evangelical Dark Web tonight. We're going to, you know, I feel like I had to study for this one <laughs> because tonight we got on Dr. Russell Fuller, Old Testament uh, scholar, ancient Hebrew expert. And, you know, this is someone who's also taken a stand in against social justice in the church, uh, specifically the Southern Baptist Convention and Su Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where he was largely fired uh, and then blew the whistle after uh, leaving, wouldn't take the severance package and has started his own thing. And I have linked that in the description below so you can check out uh, what Dr. Russell Fuller is doing. But tonight, you know, you know, rather than, you know, we could tell his story, but I, I just want to get a sense, you know, people need to realize what a treasure that he is and a pool of knowledge. And so that's kind of what I want to do tonight with this interview. Um, and, you know, maybe the Southern Baptist Convention will realize what they're missing or something. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, so that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well, Ray. Good to have, good to be with you tonight. Awesome. So, uh, we're gonna. I have like six prepared questions, maybe, uh, maybe just five. But obviously, I'm gonna be interacting with chat because I usually always interact with chat, uh, with very limited exceptions. But uh, we're gonna start out, and I'm wondering, you know, what's the best way to start out? But First, I do want to say uh, Evangelical Dark Web is a online discernment Christian news and commentary uh, ministry, and you can support it over at evangelicaldarkweb.org slash join. Uh, all that's linked in the description below. There's a newsletter to get daily uh, Christian news uh, and commentary pieces in your inbox. It bypasses big tech censorship because big tech censors pretty much everything, like even search traffic is censored. I, I think that's something most people don't realize. Uh, DuckDuckGo is probably the worst offender at search engine uh, censorship. But anyway, number one question I guess I want to tackle is, let's uh, start out Old Testament. Let's go to Genesis and let's kind of just talk about the Nephilim. Because yeah. this is definitely a subject of a lot of debate. I mean, I'm not sure what exactly. And I, I guess where I want to start off with is what is like the more rabbinical understanding of the Nephilim and, you know, the Hebrew word, and then we can kind of get into more inter interpretations of uh, sons of God and sons of man as it relates in Genesis six, which would be the text for this question. Right. And Genesis six, it talks about a group known as the Nephilim they're also mentioned in the book of Numbers as well. And they are, the, the, the Hebrew word Nephilim has the idea of fallen ones. So they are fallen men uh, is probably the idea. But yet, as you read the verse that, uh, that we're talking about there in Genesis 6, they're called men of stature, men of a name, literally in the Hebrew, meaning they're, they're men of renown. They're men who are very famous for their actions and their exploits. And it, what it says also is it's before those days and after those days, which could mean you know, before the flood, after the flood. But uh, again, these Nephilims were uh, fallen beings. 
it's connected, of course, to the verses above it, which talk about the sons of God. So how you view the sons of God will sort of affect how you interpret those Nephilim beings. If you go over to the book of Numbers, they're clearly giants. They are uh, the, the spies who go to spy out the land of Canaan comes back and they go, we were grasshopper, grasshoppers in their sight. So we were short. They were very tall. They are also uh, linked to another group at, in the book of Numbers 2 called Anakim. And again, these are giants as well. In Genesis 6, when it says they're men of stature, it, it, it can mean that they were giants and they may have been giants. But also it could just mean they were very famous. And again, when it says later on, they were men of a name, that's clearly famous. So again, men of stature, it could mean that they were giants even in Genesis 6. But again, it's also possible that it just means they were people of, they were famous. They were well known and um, again, very famous for their exploits. But it really goes back to the sons of God and how you kind of view that. And just briefly, I've seen three different views. I'll, I'll, I'm sure there's other views so, there, but go ahead. Yeah, right. One of the leading views is that the sons of God were fallen angels who yes. thought that earth women were good to mate with and thus uh, consummated and you know, procreated, right. which obviously there's one theological hump to hurdle over and that's the idea of angels being able to procreate with humans i think that's a huge barrier to accepting that yeah i don't think the evidence is there if jesus makes reference that the angels do not marry correct uh, but and even still the idea of something that's not imago day uh being able to procreate with an imago day also logically seems like a hurdle that is hard to uh, hard to it's overcome. A, it's a very difficult thing to overcome. You'd almost have to do, in my opinion, something like demons were possessing human beings and so, and, and doing it through human beings. But I, I don't know if that will really get you anywhere. I, I'm like you. I um, And again, I've gone back and forth in my mind, which view to go with. That view that you're describing was very popular between the Old and New Testament periods, the times of when something like the Apocrypha or what's known as the Pseudepigrapha books. Most of that was written between the two Testaments, the Old and the New Testaments, and it was very uh, common uh, view during that time. But again, not everyone held that view. The rabbinic view on it uh, the, the, is the idea that the sons of God there is referring to the leaders, the judges, the rulers. And there are many times where the term sons of God or just God is referring to judges because they're standing in the place of God. And so that's been a very popular view. And then the view that probably I lean toward is the one that it's, it's the line of Seth intermarrying with the line of Cain. And therefore the sons of God refer to... Um, Saved folks, those who are calling upon the name of the Lord, as it says uh, in chapter four. And so now the whole human race is becoming corrupt. I think it's very important 
that Genesis, the first few verses of Genesis 6 is talking about human corruption, not demonic, angelic. Right. I guess the more, I don't want to say, but the more uh, fantastical view that, you know, these were demons that intermated with humans, they paint Genesis 6 in the flood narrative as God trying to save the genetic purity of humanity that because you know it's kind of like satan's attempt to corrupt the bloodline of christ therefore right. you know there couldn't be a messiah if uh if it was corrupted with demons I, is the logic so god wiped that out and flushed the toilet on that and restarted well some, Noah. i guess some would hold to that i um the, the reason that, that some people like the let's say the demon view or the angelic view is there's a couple of verses in the New Testament that they'll appeal to. Jude chapter 6, for instance, and I think it's 2 Peter 2.4, which talks about God punishing the angels. But I think in that context, yeah, it's talking about Genesis, I think, or at least the time of Genesis. But again, I think it could be referring to the time of the fall of Adam and Eve and the fall of Satan and so forth. So I would put that more with the fall of Lucifer, Satan, and his demonic forces. And I yeah, it's also, yeah, it's kind of weird that there'd be multiple periods of angels falling. Yeah, yeah. See, that's very difficult to, because um, the scripture, I, I don't see where it says that. It looks like there was one definitive period when it did happen. I put it at the fall of man as well. But uh, again, others will put it in different places. But again, these are difficulties. They, they really are. They're difficult. Right. And so, go ahead. Yeah. I guess one last loop around the question is the idea of the Nephilim perhaps being giants and you see giants later on. So how did, yeah, I guess these giants are still humans, correct? Correct. Yeah. yeah. So is it, you know, because obviously in numbers, when they send the spies out and the spies give the report back, you know, they're kind of whining a little bit. So it, it, I'm not sure how I, I don't want to say literal because, you know, it's literature in a sense. But like, I'm not sure how imaginative to be with their d- doubtful description. Like, you know, they're trying to shed doubt on the situation. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. Yeah. So I, I guess, you know, how imaginative can I be with a, the work, the account of spies that were disloyal? Yes, I think when, when they mention the Nephilim, then they say, and we saw the sons of Anak, the Anakim. You could that just took the air out of people. They were right. their faith went right down the tubes when they said that. Now, when, again, when you look at Genesis 6, it doesn't necessarily, it could mean that they, they were giants. Um, so some of the people who were born were very tall. Now, I mean, if you think right. of, think of yeah, somebody. David like, and Goliath. Goliath. Yeah, like Goliath. Super you know, tall. Probably Goliath was somewhere in the neighborhood eight, nine feet. Uh, the problem is when it describes his height, we do know that in biblical times and before, before the biblical times and so forth, they use different types of measurements. So a cubit could be a, a different length at different times. And we see this, it's like what we have in America. We have a- Well, a gallon. Roman foot is different than an English Yeah, exactly. Foot. Or we say a gallon, and then we can say, well, an imperial gallon. And so 
you know, the same gallon can be really uh, different, a, a lot of different measurements according to what kind of gallon are we talking about. And it's the same with size. But the, 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 the usual cubit that I go with is the one that the uh, Hezekiah built a tunnel through some uh, solid stone. And at the end of that tunnel, they put up a, a monument or a little plaque which I think is today in the museum in Istanbul. And there it talks about how, long, how many cubits that tunnel they built was. And it's about, if I remember right, either at 18.5 inches or 17.5 inches. It's one of the two. And so that's basically what I do. And that would give Goliath up around, you know, nine, eight or nine feet. So these, some of these guys, and I think Josephus even talks about, they had some bones from these giants, you know, that were, you know, obviously much larger bones than uh, the normal human bones, you see. So, and again, whether they were able to always distinguish though between a human bone and an animal bone, I'm not sure. But um, what you see is these were very tall people, some of them. And so I don't know if the spies were completely, I don't know if they were exaggerating, but clearly they didn't want to go. The ten they had an agenda. They had an that, agenda. That's what you got to kind of read it. You got to you you know, caution. Oh, yourself. Yeah. It's kind of oh, like, yeah. no doubt. Uh, you know, one of the things I remember you bringing up on one of your interviews with John Harris, I, I forget which professor it was, but the one that was teaching like that Job was teaching mythology. Oh yeah. And he was basing a lot of his arguments off of the f comments from the friends of Job. Right. And it's like, I don't know, like a lot of, what they're saying is true, but like wrongly applied. But some of what they're saying, you know, you know, you can't take it, you know, you can't build a theology around it, I guess is one way to put it, because these are the villains of the story or one of the villains of the story, I guess. And it's yeah, like I mean, the friends of Job who are trying to get on him when he's the one that's faithful to the Lord. Right. Yeah. I think when you look at their theology, let's say, take it out of the context of Job and just look at their the overall theology. I think it's excellent. I think it, Job great. is a hard book for me to read because yeah. it's like an yeah. epic rap battle of history. But <laughs> it's, you know. Job's friends, I think their theology is in many ways impeccable. I mean, it's just absolutely fantastic. The problem is they believed that, and again, this is a, I'm taking a knock here at their theology, but I think this was somewhat Job's theology too where they were both in error on, in this life, you're punished in just proportion to how wicked you are. And in this life, you're blessed in just proportion to how righteous you are. And I think both were uh, incorrect on that point. But their overall theology is very solid. Now, again, the friends also made this mistake. Uh, they accused Job of all sorts of sin. But again, that was because they thought he's the most wicked man that's ever lived. Look how he's suffering. Nobody suffered like this. Right. He's got to be the most wicked man. But if you if you take just a lot of their statements, though, yeah, even that statement that uh, the king of terrors is talking about death there and death is for human beings. It is the king of terrors. And then the firstborn of the dead is disease, you see. And that's yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, even there, I think they're correct. And that's not mythology whatsoever. Of course, that same professor, 
would see parts of Isaiah where God, where, where death is swallowed up. He goes, oh, see, God swallows him up, just like in the Ugaritic mythology, you see. And so, you know, he saw a lot of mythology in scripture. Yeah. And, you know, obviously, probably the most annoying, this is not a planned question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. One of the most annoying, probably the most annoying YouTube comments I get are from the people that defend William Lane Craig, who believes that the first 11 chapters of scripture are basically fiction. Yes. But not to be taken, you know, as narrative, as opposed to, you know, once Abraham comes into the fold, then scripture is you know right. for real for real and I, the problem I is like get that yeah because i read the first ch- chapters of genesis they're still narrative like oh yeah maybe the ancient hebrew is more poetic in some places but oh yeah i, I don't yeah. see a genre shift and that's correct when you look if if, if you think uh, you know old testament history begins in chapter 12 well, Abraham's lineage is back there in chapters 11 and 10 and so right. forth. So, I mean, they're connected. You can't do that. And, and, and here's the thing to do, though. Look at the Apostle Paul. What does Paul or, or Christ or any of the later writers, they will quote from those first 11 chapters. And they don't quote that as anything other than historical narrative. I mean, fact, Hebrews 11 not only has... yeah. Abel, but also oh yeah Noah, and how about this? Luke has Jesus in the genealogy with Adam. You see, right? So, I mean, we've got a real problem with with these things. And again, Paul talks about Adam being the first man. Uh, you know, Adam and Eve being the first people. We we cannot uh, go with theistic evolution and so forth. I think William Lane Craig is leading a lot of people. Uh, in the wrong direction. I think his views of Genesis 1 through 12 is simply uh, against the teachings of the apostles and the prophets. Uh, I'll even go a step further than that. I wouldn't listen to him. I I think he is um, beyond the pale uh, with his uh, way of interpreting scripture. I I cannot, uh, uh, I, I see him as a false teacher. Yeah, it's just one of those things like he's what he teaches on the Old Testament is so contrary to (laughs) the belief in the inerrancy and correct uh, accuracy of Scripture that it's yeah, there's no other way to look at it. And for people to try to like obfuscate that, that's the most annoying YouTube comments I ever ever get. They're more annoying than the Catholics that I made mad recently. The second Peter chapter three talks about the second coming of Christ. And of course, it puts it right together with Noah. They were mocking during the time of Noah. They're going to not mock during the time of before Christ comes and so forth. Clearly, those two events are being put together. So, you know, Peter clearly thought that the, uh, again, the Noah story was real history, not some kind of phony history and so forth. So, um, oh, yeah. I mean, I remember Al Mohler one time had me in his office and he was hinting toward he, he was heading toward the view that uh, Genesis one is written in mytho poetic language. And I remember saying, no, not at all. Uh, it's just as much narrative as the book of Deuteronomy. Most of Deuteronomy is book of numbers. 
It is just pure narrative. There's no poetry there. And don't, don't get me started on the word mytho. And there is no myth there whatsoever. But again, Mueller, a lot of these guys are heading down that, you know, this is, this is poetry. But let me tell you this, Ray. You can look at the most liberal translations today. Uh, and when it looks at Genesis 1, they never set it off as poetry. Because even the liberals know that's not poetry. And so it's ridiculous. And again, I went to Jewish schools and none of my professors, if you would have said to any, and again, they were not conservatives. If you would have said Genesis 1 is poetry, they would have just went, what? I mean, that's ridiculous. But again, Moeller was even heading in this direction as well when he was talking to me, at least. That, you know, Genesis 1 has, has got a lot of poetry and, you know, he even used the term mythopoetic. And I was like, no. <laughs> I mean, Genesis is probably one of the books I have the most questions about, but it's not just the normal questions that people have. Like, I kind of wonder, why did the sons of Cain or the descendants of Cain have so many accomplishments in music, math, art, uh, and, and et cetera? Like, you know, you look at them and it explains, oh, they invented, you know, this, this and this in Genesis 5, I believe. And I kind of wonder, like, wow, why did they get, you know, what was so special about those people that they kind of had all these, you know, worldly accomplishments? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, yeah, that, that's just that's a question that's on my mind. Yeah, when I read Genesis. It's interesting. We see that somewhat today. We see where uh, some people who have invented a lot of things and so forth, their mind is on these things, you know, twenty-four hours a day and so forth. And uh, yeah, I, I can't tell you why Cessline, of course, they're the ones who, again, call on the name of the Lord. And that's far more important. Exactly. But it's it, it's interesting. You know, if you're the one who invents music or ge uh, geometry right. or whatever, you'd think that, well, uh, you know, because yeah, Christians do have a history of advancing science and the arts. Oh, yes, I do. So, you know, it's kind of interesting that you don't see that uh, pre-flood at least not explicitly stated as it does in Genesis five. So that that's just one of my like, wow, we're never really <laughs> going to know the answer to that one No, no. Uh, type of question. So I think the next book I want to jump to, we're going to sw switch gears a little bit here and kind of go to Leviticus. Okay. So Jesus cites as the second greatest commandment being like the first one, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is a reference to, the back half of Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Mm -hmm. And if you're uh, new to the uh, live stream, don't forget to like the live stream and uh, also subscribe to the channel if you are new. But I do got to get this one chat in here. Old Testament, Annie Stanley has left the chat. <laughs> that <laughs> is hilarious. I didn't mean to make uh, Andy mad, but I know Andy is no fan of the Old Testament. Yeah. <laughs> His reputation way, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me talk about Andy for a second. Again, Andy, right. please don't uh, t take this uh, personal. Of course, that's Andrew Costa. And so, but uh, Andrew, um, you know, when you look in the New Testament and like, for instance, again, I was talking about Second Peter uh, chapter three there, you know, Peter's getting toward the end of his life. And he says, look, um, he commends the uh, Christians to look to the prophets and then the commandments given to you by Christ through the apostles. 
And so notice the authority for Christians has always been the Old and the New Testament. And we recognize we don't live under the Mosaic law in the sense of the Mosaic economy. We don't offer sacrifices, keep the food laws and so forth, of course. But Paul can even find application for Christians in such passages like, you will not muzzle an ox while he's threshing out the corn. <laughs> and I mean, when you read that, he goes, now that's not talking about just oxen, is it? <laughs> you know, no. I mean, in a sense, yeah, he's just talking about oxen there. But do you see how Paul sees that every, even scriptures in the Old Testament, which do not look like it applies to us? Yes, they do. They have real application for believers. And so, uh, the Old Testament is very important for us and how we, what we believe about God and how we're to live our lives. You know, when Paul talks about love, which we're about to talk about love for one's neighbor, when he talks about love, he starts quoting the Ten Commandments. The idea is if we'll live with each other in view of the Ten Commandments, we're living in love toward one another. And uh, so, uh, you know, when I see a guy on the streets, you know, I don't have a warm, fuzzy feeling for him. I don't know the guy. But if I behave toward him in a way that's consistent with God's word, then I am loving my neighbor as myself. You see, I'm, I'm loving him as I ought to. Yeah, there's no warm, fuzzy feeling. Again, I don't know the guy. Maybe I just met the guy or something. Uh, it's not what well, you, you and I usually think warm fuzzies, you know, when we think about love. When you look at the passage there in Leviticus 19, notice it talks about, again, we're not to slander our brother. It talks about how we are to uh, treat our brother appropriately. We're not to hate him in our hearts. We're not to take personal vengeance. Right. And that's like the key. Like when I've written about loving your neighbor as yourself, you know, the bat, the first half of that verse, which I could not fit in the overlay, is basically saying you shall not take vengeance against your neighbor, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So that's my paraphrase of the first half of that mm-hmm. verse. So loving your neighbor as yourself is juxtaposed with private vengeance. Yes. So Or bearing a grudge as well. Yep. So oh. it, it just makes... So I I guess I have a couple questions like this is a pretty, I don't want to say obscure part of the law, but in in our versification, you know, it got like relegated to half of a verse. And it's like what Jesus cites is the second greatest commandment. (laughs) Yeah. So it's kind of, you know, you know, Jesus reached deep when he was asked that question. Mm hmm. And I kind of wonder, like, how much in the Old Testament was this commandment, uh, you know, kind of valued? Like, how surprising was it that Jesus would have given uh, this answer? Or, And, you know, the first greatest commandment also is not in the Ten Commandments. But I think that might be in more than one place in the Old Testament. I could be wrong. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, when, when, yeah, when Jesus has asked that, and I believe it's around uh, Mark 12, and of course it's in the other gospel, uh, Matthew as well, the uh, Pharisee asked him, again, he's a scribe, but that's part of the Pharisee's group. They were yeah. same, same group, but a little bit different. But uh, when he's asked that, he quotes what is known as the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
And that is sort of a commentary on the first commandment, you'll have no other gods before me. It's the statement of monotheism, which you see in the first commandment of the Ten Commandments. And basically the, uh, the Lord our God is one is sort of, in my opinion, gives us somewhat of a commentary on the first commandment. And therefore, uh, Jesus gives that one. And then he says, like you say, love your neighbor as yourself. Notice the scribe was very impressed with this. And he's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> he was like, you know, and, and Jesus even says, you're not far from the kingdom, even though the man, when he first came and asked that question, he was tempting Christ. In other words, he was trying to uh, get Christ in a sort of an, an argument, catch him on a mistake or something. But by the time Jesus finished with him, you could tell he was a different man. And Jesus said, you're not far. You're not far away, even though his motive when he came was not a good motive. But notice the, the, the scribe is very, very uh, impressed with Jesus's uh, statements there. And by the way, I think what Jesus does there is he summarizes the Ten Commandments in those two commandments. Right. So, you know, the first four commandments are uh, duty toward God. And then five through 10, our duty towards man. And so again, I think that's why Paul in, in Romans, and I always get it confused, it's 12 or 13. I think it's 13, where he talks about, you know, we not, we're not to owe any man anything except to, to love one another. And then he talks about the Ten Commandments. He starts giving the Ten Commandments. And so again, if we um, live with one another in light of God's word, his Ten Commandments and the other commandments we see in Scripture, then we are. Going back to Leviticus and some other passages in the Old Testament, if you see your enemy, and let's say his donkey is has been, you know, like crushed <laughs> to the earth because he's been put, too much has been put on him. And so the donkey's legs give way. You're supposed to go help that enemy of yours, you know, and say, uh, yeah, let me help you here with this and so forth. And so as you read the book of Leviticus, you'll see commandments like that, where if you see your enemy and he's struggling in some way, you help him out. That's what you're supposed to do. And of course, if you do things that like that, uh, you'll be surprised how often uh, you'll lose your enemy. <laughs> you'll gain a friend. And so in the Old Testament, there's a lot to say about if you, if you're, if you see your, uh, your neighbor's animal and it's missing and you find it well you yeah you return you know who it belongs to but you take that animal you take care of it until the rightful owner you can find him or he finds you whichever way or if it's your enemy same you treat him you you treat him the right way and that's basically what's being said here We're, we've got to treat even our enemies the right right because i i remember reading that i'm like yeah this is basically taking on any excuse you know, this person's my neighbor, but that person's my enemy. It's, it's, you know, the Bible's, you know, taking away that excuse as far as duty of care right? to, you know, as it relates to like either a sin of omission or in this case, because it's explicit, you know, it's kind of a commission, I guess. Yeah. And later on in Proverbs, of course, if, you, if, you're, uh, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If, he, you know, if he's thirsty, give him a drink. You see that in the New Testament as well. Yeah, so a lot of people think, you know, Old Testament wrath and then New Testament love. But <laughs> obviously Christ was quoting the Old Testament when he said, love the love your neighbor as yourself. And he was asked to quote the Old Testament as well sure. uh, in terms of what was the greatest commandment. Right. So 
Of course, now I see Jesus as the author of the Old Testament. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so, yeah. But, yeah. And the other thing is, it's always good to get grounded in what the context of the commandment is. So yeah. we understand what Jesus is saying. And we also can see how this is, you know, in my mind, it is emerging as one of the most misused Bible verses in our current day and age. Uh, certainly over the last two and a half years, we saw loving your neighbor. Uh, and they don't even finish it by saying loving your neighbor as yourself, which, you know, I didn't quite finish in part of the overlay, but limited characters. But it's love your neighbor as yourself, not loving your neighbor as you want me to love my neighbor. And that's kind of how we saw many people in Big Eva and the church misuse this passage over the last two and a half years, especially. Yeah. Uh, so. And we got uh, Edwin Ramirez on the uh, chat tonight. Uh, we both uh, met him at the uh, retreat oh, yeah, totally. in New York. So shout out. Yeah. Uh, so I guess next place we're going to bounce to, since I'm probably going to just go in order of the Bible and these questions. But actually, there was a question about the Old Testament form of government, because I think a, this is kind of a, an issue that kind of gets lost because you see it in application at times. But a lot of people think that. uh you know, the pr they, they think that the Old Testament was a theocracy, and I guess it was. And I'm going to use kind of Joel Webbins distinction of a theocracy where Christ is king versus an ecclesiocracy in which the church runs the state or a statism or whatever in which the state runs the church. So he kind of makes that distinction. But I guess a lot of people think that the Old Testament was, you know, ecclesiastical rule or sort of direct, but there are a lot more instances of, you know, two separate spheres of influence. Yes, they do conflict. And, you know, there's the priest that was a kingmaker with the, uh, who overthrew the one wicked queen of Judah, if I recall. Right. I think Jehoiada. Yeah. Uh, the high priest. And yes, for Joash. Yes, Joash. Uh, was that's correct. He overthrew Athaliah. And what will happen later on is when Joash, once that high priest dies, um, Joash starts to go in the wrong direction and actually murders the son of that high priest that he really owed so much to. It's, it's a very sad story there. But uh, yeah, there was, uh, uh, and then there were some uh, kings who would try to encroach upon uh, offerings or different things like this and they would be smitten sometimes with leprosy and so forth and so um yeah there was definitely a distinction between the priesthood and the king and in somewhat the prophets as well and so you can definitely see they are now look i mean when you get to herod for instance the herod the great the Romans and so forth. Herod, for instance, would uh, depose a high priest, you know, like a legitimate high priest and put his own crony in there. Now, again, he was a Le Levitical, but yet he wanted a priest. He wanted a high priest that would do business with him, you see. Right. So later on, you'll see things like that. But in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, I don't know quite of an example like what I just gave you with Herod the Great. 
but yeah, there was a distinction. I would see it as a, a pure theocracy where God even says things to, you know, now he even says in Deuteronomy, there will be a king, you know, in his time, but that king rules under the Lord. But the thing about the, the, the Lord doesn't want them to have a bunch of chariots. The Lord doesn't want them to have, you know, um, all these kinds of things because the Lord's going to fight for them. And so in many of their battles, Jehoshaphat, for instance, had a battle where he was outnumbered uh, quite a bit. And again, uh, his prayer was, our eyes are upon you, Lord, because again, he, he, he had an army, but his army couldn't defeat the armies that were coming against him. And so it was always, the Lord was like, get rid of the chariots, because if you have a bunch of chariots, you win, you'll think you're the ones who won the battle. But I want to show you that I'm the one. So again, it's like, remember when he had too many, uh, Gideon had too many soldiers. Right. You have to get it down to 300. So the Lord will get the glory for these things and not man. So when you look at the commandments given to the king, it's really interesting because uh, he's not to multiply chariots. And he's not to multiply. I thought it said horses in Deuteronomy. Yeah, yeah. And he's not to multiply wise, which is something that I got somewhat wrong, but it, in a point that I was making, but I was wrong in the sense that, you know, it, you know Solomon actually fulfilled that verse in which he multiplied wives and oh, was led astray. He yeah. fulfilled that verse. Now, David might not have, but I don't know. Uh, yes, it's, it's a tough one, but the, with the multiplication of wives it, for, for different reasons. Yeah, because kinsman redeemer would probably be like number one reason. You know, theoretically, I don't. You know, if a yeah, kinsman redeemer situation mm -hmm. would allow for that, uh, you know, I don't know if Boaz had a, another wife or not. It doesn't say, you know, but, you got to remember this with David and Solomon. They were right. very they were very powerful kings uh, in the world. And so every other king wanted to marry off a daughter to them because right. that, that, you know, they want good relations. When you get to the other kings, like Jehoshaphat, as great as a king as he was, you know, he marries his son off to the daughter of Jezebel. And that brings in, once he dies, I mean, the kingdom really goes down uh, because of his son, who, again, was the, uh, basically the, uh, again, related with the house of Ahab and Jezebel. So uh, these things are... Um, the multiplication of wives and who you marry your son to for political reasons sometimes can be a very dangerous thing. Yeah. So I guess, you know, even, you know, uh, before the establishment of Kings, mm -hmm. you know, the book of uh, judges makes it seem like, okay, there's no King. So everyone just does what they want. There's a lot of chaos morally. And yet in first Samuel, it's kind of confused. It's very much against a king having a king, you know, because they're warned that, hey, if you have a king, you'll pay 5% income tax or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> How generous that is. Because uh, I think the Romans only charge like 3%. Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, it's just one of the inaccuracies of the chosen. <laughs> but, you know, they only charge like 3%. So, but. Yeah, five percent was considered a judgment, and then uh, conscription, I think, was the other thing uh, mentioned in that verse. Yeah, he would he would take the best of your sons and daughters and make bakers and you know soldiers right. and so forth. So, so um, how 
how do we reconcile two opposing pictures the view and judges that there's chaos because there's no king and the view in uh first samuel that you know having a king will invite further judgment of god yeah well when you have a king the last thing a king wants is any kind of disorder uh, the kings, they are, if you read the book of Jeremiah, for instance, you'll see when there's an uproar, let's say in the temple, immediately the king's people show up to quell that. The one thing kings do not want is any type of political, religious, or any other disturbance, because that can lead to the overthrow of the king. So a king, the first order of business is stability. You didn't have stability during the time of the judges. Instead of, they were the freest, pe they would have been the freest people on earth. But instead of serving the Lord, they wanted to serve and they became slaves to their own uh, lust. And therefore, every man did what was right in his own eyes. When you get to, to me, the, the, the best time of the judges is actually in the book of Samuel, because the time of the judges goes through the first few chapters of Samuel until you get Saul, obviously. And there around chapter seven of first Samuel, you'll see where the people are repenting. He uh, pours out water being symbolic of them pouring out their hearts in repentance and, and faith. And God fights for them against the Philistines. That's the way it was supposed to be in the time of judges where they would truly uh, be godly people, rely on the Lord to take care of them. But again, they've decided to sell themselves into sin and to sell themselves uh, into slavery by their sins, God would give them over to their enemies to chastise them. And when they would repent, God would hear them and restore them. So judges should have been the high, in my opinion, the highest time in Israelite history of freedom, liberty, with God being their king. But they, the problem with their wanting to be a king was not necessarily wanting a king. The problem was they wanted a king like all the other nations. They wanted to be like all the other nations. God had already promised them in Deuteronomy they'd be a king. Uh, he'd have a king for them down the road when it was God's time. But they, uh, they wanted to be like everyone else. They wanted their nation to be run like every other. They didn't want the freedoms that they could have if they walked in the ways of the Lord. And, you know, the book of Judges ends with uh, a lot of uh, turmoil, specifically with the near eradication of the tribe of Benjamin, mm -hmm. if I recall. Correct. And I, I kind of am wondering because they, you know, because the whole thing is like this is chaos. Everyone just does what is right in its own eyes is kind of what undergirds that entire narrative because the Benjaminites were willing to defend. Uh, was it just someone who raped the stranger? I, I forget. It was, was it something uh, more... it was a very heinous crime. They took yeah, was... a woman and they uh, uh, they abused her till she died. So the guy and then they wanted up. to defend that. Yeah, that's correct. They wanted they said they told the other tribes, "Hey, we, we're good with this, and it's none of your business." And they were like, "Uh, -uh. uh we're, this is this is even too much for us." Remember the um, the um, Book of Ruth is also written during the time of the judges. Right. And in there, remember, Naomi tells Ruth, uh, oh, no, excuse me, Boaz, I think, tells Ruth 
be careful which field you go into. And he warns the men not to mess with her, not to mess with Ruth. It shows you as you read that book that there was a lot of crime, a lot of danger for a woman, you know, uh, if she goes into the wrong field, if she, you know, you could tell it was a time. Because if they went into the land of Ephraim or whatever during a period of time, they could be taken by a Benjaminite, <laughs> yeah. something like I, that. Yeah, well, that's later on. That's that was a different thing. But what I'm just telling you is it was a time of high crime. By the way, you see the same thing a little bit in Genesis 20 when Abraham goes to Abimelech and he has to he says about his wife, she's my sister. Remember that? Yes. And later on, when the, the king will rebuke Abraham and say, well, why did you do this to us? You know, that we, we would have done a great sin. And he says, he goes. Hey, he didn't want to sin. He just wanted to, you know, he didn't want to commit adultery. He just wanted to fornicate. But what he said was this, though. Here, here's what Abraham yeah. said. The reason I did this is because when I came to your town, I saw there was no fear of God and they will kill me to get to Sarah. So what you see is when sin, when you see a, a society given over to crime, like America, you know, there's no fear of God, you see, in that society. And that was what was going on in the judges. That's what's going on in America today. That was going on um, with Abimelech and his kingdom and so forth. Uh, there's no fear of God there. And so it's a very dangerous time. Yeah. And I guess just to wrap up the, point about the book of judges is like i kind of wonder because the other the 11 tribes make a vow not to marry their daughters off to benjaminites you know and then they kind of yeah. were like that went too far but yeah you know, that's right they really wrong for doing that because i i look at that situation i'm not marrying my daughter off to those people yes so it's like so, they're kind of right but at the same time like but they have to yeah. do something to save that tribe right and so Baby. They have something where you know, the ladies who go out into the field, they can be taken for wives and you didn't give them. So it's it's a way to get around the oath. It reminds me of uh, an Israeli uh, prime minister, Shamir. He had made a vow that he would not do a peace agreement, I believe it was, uh, with um, especially I think Egypt was especially in his mind, but others. And so when they were trying to make that uh, agreement between uh, Assad of Egypt, uh, not Assad, excuse me. Assad of Syria. Um, Sadat, Anwar Sadat. Uh, yeah. And uh, he says, look, I took an oath. I can't do it. And so he was in the same situation. And, th and then they said, well, I'll tell you what. We'll go and have the Knesset do it. And that way you don't have to break your oath. Okay. And so they <laughs> found a roundabout a way, way to save face. They found a way of doing it where he did not have to break his oath. So I thought that was interesting. <laughs> so. so the next area that I want to go to is something that we're seeing more of in today's culture, specifically because there are a lot of prominent celebrities that believe in some capacity, you know, black Hebrew Israelite theology, uh, obviously Kanye West, uh, uh, a lot of basketball players. I can't, I don't want to confuse the names. I want to say Kyrie Irving was one of the na names and then ice cube, another famous rapper. So 
Deuteronomy uh, 28 is definitely one of the go-to passages for this, and it's kind of a very Afrocentric reading of it, but it does leave a lot of people confused because they don't uh, see, they don't quite see, you know, a lot of Christians might not see the immediate impact, so I, I kind of do want to pull it up real quick. Oh, no, not like that. Uh, pull it up. No. It's because I'm not in share screen yet. Okay, there we go. So going back to audio tab. So. No. There we go. There we go. Finally got the technical stuff worked out. Uh, so this is like the back half of chapter and one of the things that it talks about are uh in verse 68 where it says the lord will bring you back to egypt in ships by the way of which i spoke you will never see it again and there you will offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves but there will be no buyer and a very afrocentric reading of that text it you know, makes you wonder, you know, where did this happen to the Jews in the Old Testament? And obviously, I see major historical issues trying to tack that onto the Atlantic slave trade because Egypt was associated with a lot of slave trade, but not that one. Like Mediterranean slave trade is a different animal than the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. And Egypt also had like the the Mamluks and stuff like that, which was like a slave dynasty that was you know, slaves that revolted and formed their own empire, so to speak. Uh, you know, history they don't teach in public schools. But anyway, some of these curses that are in Deuteronomy 28, we don't, aren't as clear as uh, Old Testament judgments in the rest of the Old Testament. So how do we reconcile some of this stuff with the I guess a lot of the other parts of scripture. Um, you mean as like a, as a Christian, how do I understand these verses for us? Is that what you're kind of, uh, I mean, yes, for sure. Uh, that's what certainly one area to put it. Cause you know, when are, you know, the Lord will bring you back to Egypt in ships. Like when do we see that happen? Is that when, you know, they're trying to run to Egypt uh, during the time of the Babylonians or, and, you know, that doesn't work out for the Israelites in Egypt. Is that what that verse ultimately points to? Or... Yeah. I'm not sure when this was fulfilled or if it has been fulfilled or, you know, probably it's been fulfilled already uh, when, and it could have happened under the, when the Babylonians because they got scattered to all points of the compass, basically. And so, yeah, probably that's where I would put it. But again, the scriptures do not say specifically when this was fulfilled. So I can't, uh, but that would make a good time. Now, there was a group that went down to Egypt, but they're not described as going on ships with Jeremiah. They were very poor. And so I don't see it was that group, but it could have been, when Nebuchadnezzar uh, conquered, he would, you know, bring many people back to Babylon to be slaves there, but he could sell them as well down to Egypt at that time, buy the ships. 
So I would probably put it there. But again, the Bible doesn't, to my knowledge, specifically tell us when this passage was fulfilled. What you have in this chapter is the book of Deuteronomy. But let me just go back to Exodus 20, 19 in that area. You know, when the Lord brought, he redeems the nation of Israel, you know, redeems them out of slavery of, to the Egyptians. And now they're the Lord's slaves is what they are. And then what he does is he enters into covenant with them. And he becomes their God and they become his people. And so he gives them, now again, they're, they're already redeemed. They've already been redeemed out of slavery, but he didn't just redeem them and say, now, uh, well, I'll see you later and you know, go your own way. No, he redeemed him for himself. He redeemed them for himself. And but he but he gives them he goes, here are my here's the way I want you to walk in. And of course, they see it. And they go, yes, we will do all the things that are written in the, this book and so forth. And so the Lord says, you know, if you'll walk in these ways, here's the blessings that are going to come your way. And again, you talk about liberty, you talking about prosperity and things of this nature. As, as Israel obeyed, they were the most blessed people you can imagine, the freest people on earth, so forth. They got a day off every week. They got a year off every seven years where they didn't have to sow, plow, I mean, when you really look at it, the Lord was, uh, and again, you had the year of Jubilee, uh, you, you, their land would come back to them and so forth. I mean, it was a wonderful situation. If you read it carefully, uh, they had an excellent uh, situation if they would obey the Lord. But if not, the Lord promised certain curses to come upon them, to whom much is given, much is required. And for us as New Testament believers, as we walk in the ways of the Lord, the Lord blesses us. But as we, you know, get entangled in sin and so forth, the Lord's going to bring chastisement upon us. Uh, that's clearly taught in the New Testament as well. But the Lord's going to chastise all of us. He chastises every son who comes to him. So we got to remember that. So not all chastisement comes from or disciplining comes from our sinfulness. The Lord is going to, uh, you know, again, just discipline us in the way that he sees fit. And that's good, you know, because we need those things to exercise our faith and to walk in his ways. And you can definitely see some of that discipline happen these days uh, with, you know, especially with the former nations of Christendom. Uh, it's rough times to be in Western civilization. That's yes, for sure. Yeah. Now, I did see a chat about, uh, you know, would like to hear Dr. Fool's contextualization of Ezekiel's visions. Some of that's hard for a layman to understand. I did have a question on Ezekiel. I'm actually reading Ezekiel right now. Okay. So, you know, uh, it, it, you know, again, prophecy is not the easiest thing to read. It's easier no. to read than uh, <laughs> Jeremiah. It's hard. I you did, you did a really good presentation on Jeremiah because, you know, once you kind of point out the lifespan of Jeremiah, because it's, you know, it, I want to like there are parts of Jeremiah that aren't quite in order or whatever. But right. once you kind of point out the lifespan, hey, he was a prophet for a very long time. That starts to make a lot of things, you know, make sense. And you kind of point out, OK, there are these kings that he served under. And then 
I don't know, you know, the whole one king was blinded. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he, he would go to Babylon, but he would never see it. Right. Yeah. Well, how did that happen? Well, he's blinded. <laughs> and yeah, it's kind of weird away. in like Eastern Roman history. They believe that if you were blind or if you were blemished, you couldn't be a king. So, you know, they would routinely blind people in Eastern Roman yeah. history. So that was their thing. It's like, we're not going to kill you, but you're blind now. So you can't be king was kind of their mentality. But anyway, uh, Ezekiel 38 is definitely one of the passages that I've seen a lot of things taken away from. You know, I see like who is Gog of the land of Magog. And I don't think that, you know, that's the same thing as was it Revelation 20. 20. And where it says Gog and Magog in Revelation 20, it says Gog of the land of Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39 also, I believe. But uh, I could pull up the whole verse, but it says uh, Gog of the land of Magog, uh, Prince of Rosh, and ten and the couple other syllables afterwards. And one yeah, of the report though, those because the the Meshech, I think, and the Tubal are very important because when you look at Magog, they're all children. And again, when I say children, they could be grandchildren as well. So you know, you can't. But they're in the lineage. Is that, is that a reference to like skipping generations in terms of lineage? Sometimes it can okay. happen. But it looks like when you look at uh, Genesis 10, I think it's, a, I forgot what verse, but in Genesis 10, it talks about the sons of Japheth, one of the sons of Noah. And these would be... Um, Gomer, right? Would yeah, one of those. that's right. These would be people from more like the Caucasian mountains, the uh, uh, Caucasus, I should say, Caucasus, uh, even up to Europe uh, and over to maybe the Indus Valley, people in that area. So it's more Europe, sort of speaking, as the way we'd see it somewhat, as opposed to Asia, as opposed, which is mostly more a, a different group of people, and then the Hamitic race, which is more in Africa, or the Hamitic races. And um, now, I always read the curse of Ham as more of a curse on Canaan. Yeah. You know, because it's mostly on him. It's mostly on just the one son of Ham that gets the curse. Yeah. And then people, the you know, in particular. Yeah. It's yes. And the then people tried to extrapolate, you know, that to all of a certain race. And it's like, okay, that's a poor no, reading. It, that. I think it's going with the Canaanites but, that the Israelites will. And, and again, not just the Israelites, but you can also see the Canaanites have are enslaved by a lot of different groups, uh, not just the Israelites. But anyway, that's another issue. But you know, when it comes to Magog, it's a land, and it looks like it's up in the Caucasus, or maybe around the, the Black Sea. Uh, it's, it's, it's groups in that area. Normally, I think it was Josephus and also Jerome calls them the Scythians, and which are known as barbaric. Uh, they were considered barbaric. Of course, if you're as are, are you talking about the horse people that in, yeah the horse the, people yeah the precursors to you know the steps of step civilizations european step yeah you know, which would be north of the caucasus mountains yeah now, uh, again, were now, known for their horseback they invented the stirrups so if you ever see like yeah. roman history things that have stirrups on horses you know they didn't have those they would literally have someone step on you know to step onto a horse they would step on yeah. someone 
usually the, the horses, like the Hurrians, the Hittites, they, they're right. associated with horses. These are, again, they come from the Caucasus regions, it looks like. And they were considered, again, barbarians. And again, usually what they meant by barbarian is they spoke in a different language and it sounded gibberish to them. Yeah, that's the Roman understanding. It was the Romans, the Greeks, you know, anybody that didn't speak Greek was a barbaros. You know, he was a barbarian. So, so anyway, the getting back to this, so it looks like the lands of the north. That's the way it's described in Ezekiel as well. What I believe Ezekiel 38 and 39 is talking about is the final battle of Armageddon. This is also the way the rabbis, the ancient rabbis viewed it this way as well. I do connect it to Revelation 20. Um, and so I, I do see that, uh, I think this is referring to, again, the, the final battle, the battle of, uh, in Gog and Magog, I think Gog is more like a name like Pharaoh. It's a title, I believe. Yeah. Now I know people have other views, but I, I think it's, it's a title. Now, one view that fascinated me the last time I talked about this, because I did a video on David Jeremiah's interpretation because he was trying to read Russia as Rosh. Rosh, yeah. Right. I'm like, that is such a terrible argument because this is written a thousand years before the Rus were an ethnicity. Right. And you're trying to make a phonetic argument, which I thought was no. terrible. Yeah. No, that, I've, I've always thought that, you know, Turkey would pretty much kind of be the limit. I guess, because a lot of yeah, these areas it, like Mechel, was it Mechel and uh, the other one, you know, refer to cities in Turkey, I believe, or yeah. at least tribes in, in Turkey. And Lydia would be another place in Turkey, yeah, modern day it, Turkey, it, Anatolia, I guess. would be. Yeah. When you when you look at the way it's described in it talks about even the remotest parts of the north and so forth. So is it possible, but, but Rosh is not Russia. That, that's not the same. That's not right. the same. So we got to remember that. But could it include Russian groups? And so it's possible. Yeah, it's, yeah of course. It's the kingdoms of the north that are going to come down. Uh, and again, they seem to me to be representative of all the anti-Christian uh, world powers coming down uh, upon the people of God. And uh, do, would I include Israel? I, I probably would, even though, again, I'm an amillennialist. I'll just be upfront with you. I'm an amillennialist. But I do see where at the end of time, there's going to be a uh, final battle of Armageddon where Christ returns and destroys his enemies. I think that's very clear. And then uh, the question, who was it, Scott, that you gave? You know, a lot of people ask me about the uh, Ezekiel 40 through 48. Some see that, of course, as a millennial, part of the millennium. There'll be sacrifices. But when I look at the book of uh, Hebrews, it looks like that Old Testament, uh, you know, is fading away the way it's described. And I don't think it's going to come back in during the millennial. I, I think that's talking. If you look at, I'll tell you what to do. Look at the last two chapters of Revelation when it talks about the new heavens and the new earth. And look at how many times, if you have a good cross-reference Bible, look at how many times they'll use language that's very similar to, to Ezekiel 40 through 48. So I see that as referring more to the time of the new heavens and the new earth. That's where I would put it. And so I think it's showing that worship of God is universal, you see. And so I think it's describing 
Again, the temple is this huge thing. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely right. huge. I'll put the question on here yeah. that uh, Violet so, asked. So I'm not taking the temple there in a most literal fashion. There is no temple in the new heavens and the new earth because the because you don't need the separation. The reason for a temple, the reason for a temple is you've got a holy God and a sinful people, and there has to be a barrier between them. He's a consuming fire. He'll destroy all the sinners. But in the new heavens and new earth, the lamb will be there and we'll be in direct contact. We don't need a, a temple anymore. Okay, to keep us from the Lord. Okay, where and 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 again in New Testament times, the church that I'm talking about, not the uh, not the building, but individual believers, we're the temple that the Holy Spirit dwells within. You see, but in the new heavens, new earth, again, He'll dwell within us. He'll be directly uh, with us again. We will not need a temple to. Um, separate us from a holy God because he would consume us, you see. So anyway, that's uh, that's the way I read um, uh, Ezekiel 42, 48. What I try to do, Scott and others, the only way I know to interpret scripture <laughs> is can you find other passages that can comment on it? Because these are very difficult things, especially prophecy, very, very difficult. And so what I'm looking for is like Revelation, you know, uh, 21, 22, there are many references, many statements there that seem to me to be pulled right out of, I mean, you know, you know what I'm saying, that are very similar to what's being described in Ezekiel 40 through 48. So again, I would take that as the new heavens and the new earth. So I want to circle back to, actually, I'm going to give a, uh, a round uh, notice to people in the chat to submit questions now while you have the chance. Uh, and then I'm going to kind of circle back to Ezekiel 38, because one of the things yeah. that I argued was that this was a lot of this was more fulfilled prophecy. I mean, I think John in you know, Revelation uses the imagery to point to the Armageddon. But I, I was fascinated by the idea of this being fulfilled because uh, and I thought the leading candidate for the fulfillment was Haman being Haman, the Agagite. And I don't. Yeah, I think Agagai is somewhere in Anatolia, or that would be somewhere in Anatolia. And Haman being a central figure and the borders that are described are largely within the realm of, you know, the Persian Empire or whatever they, you know, Archimedes or Medo-Persian, because they have like every, you know, different names for that empire. But in any way, in any case, you know, stretching from Egypt to, you know, the east in the Indus Valley, I guess, uh, that would encompass that empire. So that would be, that was kind of like my leading theory was that this is kind of foreshadowing like a defeat of Haman. But obviously in Revelation, we see a lot of Old Testament imagery, mm -hmm. which is used to point to, you know, the end times would also tell a cyclical uh, story of human history, basically. Yeah. Another thing I'll say about the millennium passage in uh, Revelation 20, it talks about Satan being bound and so forth. I see that as, you know, when you think of the Old Testament, um, the nations were uh, in a helpless situation, as Paul describes it. They were without hope in God in the world. I mean, cut off. They were without Christ. 
uh, alienated from the Commonwealth of Israel, uh, strangers of the um, covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So they were in a hopeless situation. Well, I think what that passage is saying is that during this time, what I call the messianic age that we live in now, Satan is bound. The gospel is going to all nations now. But at the end of that period, um, the nations again will be, come back together in uh, hostility against uh, the Lord and uh, his people. And there'll be that final uh, battle that's described there, I believe. Uh, it's interesting, the old rabbis, when they would talk, when they would describe the messianic age, they would often use the term millennium. And they would, because they, they, they saw history in like world history in like millenniums. They saw like a, a thousand years here, a thousand years there. In the, Messi, the, the, the Messianic age, they would call it a millennium, which is interesting. But uh, that was one of the terms they would use for the Messianic age. Interesting. Uh, and it kind of like the way you describe like amillennialism, like what's the difference between that and historic premillennialism? Because I'm kind of confused. Yeah. Because uh, uh, I'm wondering, like, what is the what is actually the difference? Yeah. A, a premillennialist. Uh, and there's, you know, again, there's varieties of all of these things. Because okay? you know, both typically favor covenant theology over dispensational theology. Right. But, but you uh, even have, but you even have uh, um, premillennialists who were not at all uh, dispensational. So there's a, there's, there's a lot here. But anyway, let me just tell you this. A premillennialist believes that when Christ returns, there will be a literal thousand year reign of Christ upon this earth. And at the end of that period, uh, another battle or something, uh, and then you have the new heavens and new earth, okay, and the final judgments and so forth after the millennium. Uh, so that's and again, there's there's uh, early some early church fathers were clearly premillennialists. Some of them were. Uh, the first amillennialist that we know in history is Augustine. Okay, he'd be number one on that. Okay. He would be the first one that we know by name. But but let me tell you this. The guys who who sort of describe this, and it's just in very general terms in the church fathers, they will admit some people don't see it as a literal thousand years. Well, they're describing the amillennial view there, but they just don't give us names. The first name we know is Augustine. He's the first amillennial. Now, what confuses me sometimes is the postmillennial folks, because I'm a uh, I'm not sure that they wouldn't consider me post-millennial because yeah, me, yeah what you kind of described that. sounded a little post-millennial yeah, in some ways. Post-millennialist, I think the way what they want to see is that the church, at least I'm thinking of a BB uh, Warfield type of post-millennialist, that the church is going to get stronger and stronger over time, you see. And yeah, I, I don't have a problem. I mean, the church is obviously now it'll go through periods of revival and decline. Like in America, the church is obviously in decline. But in other places in the world, it's doing better, you see. But there Why would you say it's doing better? Uh, places like China, even though China. I, I mean, I know China has like a lot of weird things that are brought in oh, churches, yeah. but you're more of an expert on that. But Oh, let me tell you, China is doing well in some ways, but they're hurt in two areas. Let me tell you. 
Number one, they're getting a lot of American teaching on scripture, which I'm one of them, by the way. It's doing a world of damage to them. But number two, and this is going to Chinese version of the Gospel Coalition isn't helping. Well, which they get, they get a bunch of these liberal Americans teaching them. Oh, and let me tell you this. I'll, I'll tell you this right now, and I have this on very good sources. Communist governments send people over here to learn theological liberalism in order to come come back to China to combat true Christianity. Because wow. they realize to fight it from within is the most effective means to destroy it. So this is going on. But let me tell you something else that's hurting China. And again, this is going to sound very strange. Prosperity. They're, they're pretty prosperous now. And when you're prosperous, you don't need the Lord. You know, a lot of times the true prosperity gospel is that when we become prosperous, we forget the Lord. Deuteronomy talks about this all the time. And we've got to be careful. You know, don't, Lord, as it says in what Proverbs about making me rich and I forget you or making me poor and I steal and take your name in vain, you know? Yeah, we've got to be careful because prosperity can lead us away from the gospel. And when people feel like they're prosperous, they don't need the Lord. So believe it or not, that can be a problem too. But, and again, I'm not against prosperity. I'd rather have prosperity than poverty, obviously. But if it keeps us from the Lord, that's a different situation. So I'm, I'm all for prosperity. Don't get me wrong. But I'm right. telling you, it does have an effect on this. And so, but there are some good, uh, you know, where, where the gospel is making some great headways in China. And, Anywhere uh, else you're feeling optimistic? Uh, you know, there, I've heard in places in Africa here and there that the gospel is uh, doing well. For a while, Zambia, I think it was doing very well. Yeah, Zambia is like a Christian nation. That's, I know. You know, and uh, Vodi Bakum setting up shop there. Yeah. And so, you know, Zambia. So in certain places there, you're, you're seeing some pretty some pretty good stuff. Uh, Iran, we had a question about Iran. Uh, Iran which is pretty say, interesting because like, I'm hearing. Yeah. I mean, what I'm hearing is that they are really looking toward Christianity because they've lived under Islam. And they've had enough of that. And now they're ready for uh, Christianity. And Christianity is making real headways underground there. And of course, the Christians are being persecuted terribly there. But let me tell you, uh, there's many folks coming to the Lord there in Iran. So uh, yeah, I'm really Iran hoping. Babes, you're dead on. Iran is, I think, is actually uh, is doing well in some way in some ways obviously yeah it's very I, i'm just nervous that like all this revolution thing is going to get hijacked by feminism you know in some ways like the pro-life movement here in the united states is hijacked by feminism mm -hmm. and it's well, like no, you think korea you know korea was a very strong christian country yeah and what, what happened that you, christianity helped solidify a korean national identity because they printed yeah. the bible in korean and stuff like that but unfortunately, well, in a time when Japan was trying to integrate them. Oh, man. And but the problem is, you know, they come over to America. They come to our seminaries and so forth. They get corrupted, go back to Korea, destroy the churches in Korea. So a lot of the liberalism that's come out of Europe, uh, come out of America. And again, we some of these guys are just worshipped. And uh, when I was teaching at seminary, especially the Ph.D. students, they would uh, to test them out, what I'd say is, well, yeah, Paul says this. And they'd go, oh. And then I'd say, well, N.T. Wright says, oh, really? And I'm like, uh-huh. 
you've been infected because <laughs> well here's the infected. other thing about china's history is like meritocracy based education like or education based meritocracy is kind of the like yeah. they've always had a system of schooling to advance yeah so but that's th becoming a problem too by the way from what i'm hearing and, and that's where america is getting it from or america <laughs> in some ways like yeah so we're we our bad Christianity, we're exporting it to a lot of places. Let me tell you. I mean, does at least England Indonesia, or whatever well, get Indonesia? That, yeah, in Indonesia, there's some seminaries there that again have been infected by American influence and they're not strong, they're very weak, they're teaching. Again, I've seen some of these guys where they're just they're enamored with people like NT Wright, and that's that's dis that's disastrous. I mean, NT Wright. And this is my biggest beef with him was he was one of the signers of the BioLogos statement. Oh, of course. So, you know, if you're part of BioLogos, which is an organization that literally exists to peddle theistic evolution. Yeah. Uh, and, and, yikes. And he wants to take you back to Rome, to be honest with you. Now, he's not a Roman Catholic, technically, but a lot of his views are heading toward Rome. Yeah, it, it's, it's like... I've had a lot of interaction with Catholics on this channel lately, and it's, I mean, and even some Eastern, Eastern Orthodox who I think actually have a, you know, here's a hot take. I think they have a better claim historically than the Roman, uh, you know, the Roman papists do like, because, you know, Romans like we're the one unbroken church. It's like, historically speaking, the lineage from Pope Francis now to Peter is so broken, retconned. And, you know, there's periods where there's multiple popes, there's periods with the Abington papacy in France, where France was basically appointing popes right. and not the church is like, OK, you can't reconcile. I don't know how you can be a historian and Catholic at the same time unless you fetishize it. But the Eastern Orthodox, you know, yeah, but it's like would the early church even recognize them. I don't know. Right. Hey, right. A question just came in that I'd really like to discuss. Right uh, which one? Do you affirm divine counsel from Michael Heiser? I, I don't know this question at all. Oh, so you can tackle this is, it. This is uh, provide the context as yeah, well, because yeah, I'm not familiar is, with Michael Heiser. Is, the reason I want to do this one, and thank you, Jesus is King, for, for asking this one. I get to ask this all the time, and this is hot in the seminaries. The seminaries really like Michael Heiser and his divine counsel stuff. So let me tell you what it is. Heiser wrote a book, and Jesus King might have to help me on this. The Unseen Realm, I believe, is the uh, term for the book. Heiser is a, uh, he works for Logos Bible Software, I believe, the last I knew. And I've met him once. Uh, we, we had like a like a Zoom, like we're, you know, this is not a Zoom, but uh, like what we're having here tonight. Heiser holds to this divine counsel idea that there's these, um, uh, Jesus King, you might have to help me here, but it's kind of like these, these, we'll call them minor gods. <laughs> They're the little gods. And, and so God is the God of these little gods. And the verse he wants to go to is Psalm 82 where God is ruling among the gods, you see. And so he says, see, there's this divine council in heaven where these, uh, again, not necessarily the angels, but they, you could throw the angels in there too, I'm sure. 
but it's like these other gods. And I find this to be horrible. <laughs> I'm totally against it. And if you look at Psalm 82, it's clearly talking about the judges. Judges are sometimes called gods in the Bible. I know that seems strange, but it does. In the book of Exodus, it's true. And the reason for this is they're not gods, but they're standing in the place of God is what they're doing, you see. And therefore, they are, uh, ju uh, judgment is of the Lord. And so this is, uh, they're standing in God's place. And so they're to judge righteous judgment because God is going to judge them if they don't. See, that's the key. Jesus quotes from Psalm 82, and I believe it's in John chapter 10. And there you can clearly see that Jesus is seeing that as judges. He's not seeing it as little gods or something or some divine counsel. And so if you read the context. Now I can kind of hop back in because now I am familiar with this teaching. I, I remember yeah, yeah. John Mark Comer got into some trouble for uh, basically this type of thinking where, you know, it's non I think they want to distinguish between like, monothe like they have a different word for it like there's monotheism but then there's monotheism like, and then they kind of want to say that you know this is you know not traditional monotheism or this is the monotheism that they would have had in the old testament is kind of <laughs> is kind of the argument they want to make whereas no. we are too rigid with our monotheism now is kind of like that's the argument that they're trying to make of course and they were like they were is this like, like the dc comic universe where there's God, and then there's all these other gods underneath that all recognize the God of yeah. Abraham. It's like, this is the DC comics, really? Yeah. You know, where you can have Zeus and all this, but there's still God above that? Right. If you read Psalm 82, it's clearly talking about judges there, you see, and how God's going to hold them accountable and so forth. And so the notion here of little gods, Jesus is king. He says, again, the sons of God helped create the world and humans and gave authority over different nations. The sons of God are gods. But notice how he spells it with a little G. Very nicely done. But again, this is totally against scripture. Jesus quotes Psalm 82, John chapter 10, and uh, goes with judges. There's no question. The rabbinic view of this is clearly judges, not little gods they they there's no way i want to uh, hit, yeah, hit up heiser, this follow-up question yeah heiser does use a lot of uh non-biblical text that's what he has to use that's what he's stuck with you see um to do it and again a lot of these guys today uh go to these other ancient near eastern texts and sort of try to force that upon israel now sometimes israel did take these other views uh, and go apostate. Sure. No question. Uh, I'm no, you know, I'm not saying Israel didn't do that, but they were not supposed to. And they were as rigid, I believe, monotheistically in the Old Testament as more than today, even to what I would say. So again, uh, he, uh, he would even say that the Old Testament teaches two spirits of Yahweh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think this is just pure heresy. That's exactly what I think. I think this is all this is, by the way, that like John um, Walton, Walton teaches the same type of stuff as Heiser. They're very popular. And in the seminaries, this stuff is accepted uh, quite a bit. 
Uh, a lot of the uh, seminary students are enamored by Heiser, by John Walton, and what they're teaching. And I think it's very dangerous. Uh, matter of fact, I'll just uh, come out and say, I think it's heresy. I think it's just pure heresy. What it is, it's another, it's, it's like, you know, the flu comes around every year. You know, it's seasonal, you know? Right. Well, this is just, the Bible is mythology coming around again in a different form is the way I see it. It's fancier packaging, it sounds it's like. It's fancier packaging. You know, you're, you're not using the word mythology. You're very careful about not using that word. <laughs> but you're you're basically teaching it without using the old terms. I'm just going to hit up this joke in the comments. Ray using the DC Universe analogy to claim dark side is Nephilim. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I'm not as much of a comic nerd as like I've tried to get into comics, but it's just yeah, some of it, some yeah, tropes I, I just can't go through. Like I'm sorry, yeah. and then multiverse is just the worst, uh, the worst thing in writing, the worst plot device in the history of writing because it makes everything meaningless. Right. You know, and of course, I think Heiser totally misreads Genesis one one and so forth. I think they all do. Uh, it's just the way it's been read for centuries. You know. <laughs> Um, there's nothing, uh, there's nothing new about Genesis one, you know, but they have to do, cause they, again, they want to turn that into mythology. You see. Yeah. And that, you know, that's a huge thing. By the way, I've been quoting Peter tonight. Peter talks about, you know, when we made known to you the coming and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, they didn't follow after myths. That's the word he uses there. They, the apostles knew the difference between myth and they would always contrast myth with truth. Pa Peter, uh, Paul does it. Peter does it. And they're saying, look, we didn't base the gospel on myth. But yet people like Heiser, John Walton, and many others uh, today are doing exactly that. Well, I don't see any new questions in the chat, so I think we'll kind of wrap it up. Uh, how about you? let the audience know uh, what you're working on. Uh, you know, a theology classroom, I believe it's called. Yeah. I teach something called theology classroom. And if you're interested in it, um, uh, you can go to Russell, R U S S E L L T Fuller, uh, com, And there you will see about theology classroom. I teach online. And also I have uh, <laughs> A guy who is on the uh, um, he's on the trustee board of Southern Seminary. He works for me. <laughs> uh, Tom Rush. Tom Rush. He teaches a class for me, and then I have another guy who who teaches with uh, two other guys who teach with me. And what we do is we teach the core of the theology curriculum, and so we teach a lot of Greek and Hebrew. Uh, we do a lot of that. That's what we really specialize in. But we teach just English Bible courses. And what we don't want to we don't want to sit there and talk about Heiser or we want to talk. What does the Bible say? And so we really want to get into. And again, if somebody brings up Heiser in the class or something, yeah, I'll, I'll go. I'll, I'll say something about him. But I'm more interested in it. Here's what the Bible teaches and really getting to the, the brass tacks. I'm going to teach a class in biblical theology. And in the last semester, we were looking at Christ in the Old Testament, spent most of the time talking about that, both from Jewish sources and from Christian sources. So we uh, looked at that. 
This, this semester, we're going to especially look at the doctrine of salvation in the Old Testament and the New Testament and contrast it with the way, again, the rabbis would view these things. And even like to look a lot of popular misconception, like obviously most people who go to seminary learn that, you know, Jesus' sacrifice goes before and after the cross. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a seminary answer. But a lot of people think that, you know, the works in the Old Testament save. But I see right. the Old Testament clearly teaches that works do not save. I, I think it's a clear that's, teaching in the Old Testament. That's the type of stuff we're going after in the biblical theology uh, class. Then there's a class on Psalms, the book of Psalms. And then there's a class on pastoral epistles. And their English Bible, and again, you don't need to know any Hebrew, any Greek. Uh, and we, we try not to get, I mean, in the, the Greek and the Hebrew classes, yeah, we'll get technical sometimes in there, of course, but not in the regular Bible classes. And so, and look, if you just contact me, if you want to uh, see an example of something or just kind of sit in on a class for a couple of times, see if you want to do it first, test drive it, if you like, contact me and I'll be more than happy to uh, let you test drive a class for a little bit and decide if you want to take it or not. Awesome. Uh, and that is linked in the description below. I mentioned that at the beginning, but I'll mention at the end since we have more people watching and one last thing, because I'll plug myself. If you're sticking around this long and you haven't liked the, uh, video, what are you doing? You should like that. Uh, if you're listening audio subscribe or whatever, cause I don't know how podcasts work cause I don't listen to audio podcasts, but, and then obviously if you want to support this type of ministry, you know, uh, evangelicaldarkweb.org slash join is where you can go to do it. It's a patreon like system i don't use patreon because patreon censors a lot so you and that goes towards supporting the website and some of the other equipment and stuff but also towards a big project uh, big projects that we want to do and i do have something to announce soon not right now because it'd be premature but uh big things coming up especially next year uh so we're looking forward to that and but if that's too much free newsletter free telegram and there's other socials you can follow as well the newsletter is completely free bypass big tech censorship and you can get the news of christian news in your uh, inbox daily so with that said um have a blessed night And we will catch you on the next one. I think we're all smarter for having done this. Uh, uh, Take care, everybody. And let me know what you think about what I think in the comment section below.